tale of the siren song, the idea that there were these mermaid-like beings, the sirens, and as sailors would pass by in their ships, the sirens would sing their beautiful song and lead the sailors away who would then try to get to the sirens. They would leap over the side of the ship and try to swim in the sirens, and the sirens would drag them down to their deaths. And in Greek uh, mythology, there were, there were two different guys who dealt with the sirens. First was Odysseus. Remember him? He was Achilles' right-hand guy. The Trojan War, he's coming back. They have to pass by where the sirens supposedly are, and so he ties himself to the mast of the ship because he wants to hear the siren song and has all of his other men plug their ears with wax so they can't hear the siren song sails past, and so he gets to hear them, but he can't get loose, so he can't rush to his death over the side of the ship. But then, there was another sailor who had to pass by the sirens in another Greek legend, and this guy's name was Orpheus. Now, Orpheus was a gifted musician, and so, as they were passing where the sirens were, instead of the men trying to plug their ears or whatever, tying themselves to the ship, he got his harp out, and he played music that was even more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And so they passed by safely, because the men didn't get into the siren song because they heard Orpheus's beautiful playing. <clears throat> There's a lesson for that uh, for us when it comes to false teaching. Because sometimes that false teaching is like a siren song. It sounds so good. It sounds so good. It draws people away with beautiful sounding ideals, but it only leads to shipwrecking people's faith. I mean, believe me, there's a lot of things that I wish the Bible didn't say. Do I, do I, do, I mean, I don't, I don't know any, any true follower of Jesus who's gleeful about the idea of eternal punishment for people who don't believe. If anybody's gleeful about Different people respond differently, I suppose. Some want to plug their ears and just ignore it. Some want to play with fire, like Odysseus. That happens a lot. But I think Orpheus has the right approach. I think the best solution to false teaching is to focus on the beautiful truths of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. As we go through this short letter from Paul to the Colossians, which is how we're going to spend our time until Advent, We'll get through like the first couple of chapters before Advent, and then we'll come back in January and finish the last couple of chapters. Because we've got to take a fun Christmas break. Because it's the most wonderful time of the year. I won't sing that song for you. No sense punishing you for me. Um, we're going to see how Paul counters some false ideas. And he does so not with clever arguments or with harsh rebukes. But he does it by helping us all to focus on the glorious person and work of our Lord Jesus. He exalts Christ as the answer to all false teaching. If I was going to pick a theme verse for this entire letter, I think it would be the last part of chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul writes, Christ is all in all. Christ is all in all. There's nothing more important than our faith in Jesus. You want to understand the New Testament? Start with Jesus. 
You want to understand the Old Testament? Well, Jesus himself tells us it's all about him. Everything from creation to salvation to resurrection to redemption and everything in between, it all starts and ends with Jesus. It's all about him. He is the focus of our life as followers of him. He is who we are to be becoming like, because that's God's stated purpose in Romans chapter 8 for every one of us, is to become like Jesus. He truly is all in all. So before we get into Paul's greeting to these Colossian believers, uh, let's just uh, get a little background here so we kind of know a little bit about Colossians, a little bit of the setting here. i got a map, because people like maps. I like maps. Uh, Colossae is about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So here's Ephesus, right? You go over, and here's Hierapolis and Laodicea, and then Colossae is down, down here. Okay? And so Israel would be over here, right? Europe's up here. Um, so this is Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And um, so it was kind of part of this like three-city area in the Lycus Valley. And it at one time, in the time before Paul, had been a very important city. Because at one time, all of these trade routes that came from the east actually passed kind of this way through Colossae toward Miletus. But as Ephesus became more important, the trade routes kind of moved north. And so by the time of Paul, Colossae has become sort of like a, it's like a small town. It's, it's like when you got a place, Renee's experienced this because you lived in Victor for 26, 25 years. One time, the highway just went through Victor. And then they built the freeway. And now it doesn't go through Victor. And that was very hurtful for Victor. Happens to a lot of towns, right? Once you bypass them, they become very unimportant to the rest of the world. Population was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles because a previous emperor had forcibly relocated about 11,000 Jews to this region. So the, the empire was good about that. They liked to just randomly relocate people when they took over someplace to kind of cut down on dissent. And they relocated a large number of Jews. And by the time of Paul, really the only thing going on in Colossae was sheep and wool. They made a lot of wool. A lot of wool products. The church there was originally established by a native named Epaphras. He was from Colossae. He met Paul in Ephesus during Paul's uh, long ministry there, right? During the third missionary journey, if you remember in Acts 19. I know Acts was a while ago, but um, Paul was in Ephesus for almost three years, and it's during that time, it seems, he led this guy Epaphras to Christ, and Epaphras went back to Colossae and started the church. Um, also, churches around the same time uh, were started in Laodicea and Heropolis, um, and Paul will actually mention them at the end of this letter. But we know Paul himself, we're going to notice from his language, he's, he's never been there. He's writing a letter to a church that he had never been to. And the truth of the matter is, if you think about it, if Paul, this, this city was so insignificant by this point, had Paul not written the letter to Colossians, probably all of us would go through our entire lives and never hear of the city before. It was just, it was like my hometown. Just, if you didn't know me, you probably never heard of her. I heard of Michigan. So there's really not much there. Best pizza in the world I've ever met. 
Everybody loves their hometown people. Right? Everybody loves their hometown people. Go to Decorah, people, people from Maze Peak, they're just, hey, pizza is the best. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good hunter, folks. 
Why would I go hunting? You ever see Bambi? <laughs> you know the scene where like Bambi and Thumper and the animals dance around? That's what the animals do when I go hunting. They just know they're all safe. <laughs> the worst luck. But this sort of pitting one biblical writer against another shows that someone either doesn't understand proper interpretation or they don't understand the idea of the inspiration of the Bible. To say Jesus' words in the Gospels are more important than Paul's letters is to say somehow that the Gospels are more inspired or more important than Paul's letters or whatever else. My question, first of all, is how do we get to make that judgment? I do not stand in judgment over the Scriptures, telling you which is more important and which is less important. But that happens because people read things that they simply do not like, and so the easiest way to reject those things is just reject the author's authority. We see that all the time. If you, if you don't like something, what do people do when they don't like something? They attack the authority of whoever's saying it or the character of whoever's saying it. They don't even try to attack the argument. They just attack the person. This is like a certain pastor whose last name is the same as the line of black and yellow hand tools claiming that Christians should not read the Old Testament because it doesn't matter and we don't need it. Yet Jesus himself says what? The Old Testament points to him. Now that doesn't mean everything in the Old Testament is equally applicable to all of us because some of it was specific to the time of the kingdom of Israel. But that doesn't make it any less scripture. Further, Paul's God-given role as an apostle is explained in Ephesians chapter 3. Remember that apostle in this context, or in the context of Colossians 1 here, is someone who has seen the risen Christ, was called by Christ for a specific purpose, and worked miracles. Okay? Biblical apostle. So that's like the original disciples of Paul. Well, there's other uses of the word, because the word itself just means sent one. And sometimes it's used another way. But when we're talking about the foundational persons forming the foundation of the church, right? Church is formed on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're talking about those specific people. And Paul tells us about his commission as an apostle in Ephesians 3. He says in verses 8 through 10, he says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Well, what's the mystery here? The mystery is the Gentile church that God is going to call the Gentiles to be part of his people. And Paul's job, he says here, is to illuminate, right? That's what bring the light is. That's what the word is to illuminate. The administration, okay, of how that church is to function. Administration comes from the Greek word oikonomius, which means literally the law of the home, which we also get the word economics from. Paul's job assigned to him by Jesus was to tell us how to do the church. To tell the Gentiles about the gospel and how to do the church. That's Paul's job. That's what 
telling us how, how to run the church? He's not. Tell us a lot of other things. Tell us how to live. Tell us how to treat other people. Tell us a whole lot of really important things. But how to run the church, he assigns, for the most part, to Paul. Now, is Jesus the most important person to our faith? Mm, by a long shot. He's the only one that died for us. The only one that rose from the dead for us. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. But his words recorded in Scripture and Paul's words recorded in Scripture are all Scripture. They're all Scripture. They all carry equal weight. You don't pit one against the other. If for some reason you think that Jesus is saying one thing and Paul's saying the opposite, that just means we need to study hard. That's on us, not on Paul or Jesus. The lack of understanding is on our part, not theirs. Yeah, that's not an issue that disturbs me at all. Not, I just also want to point real quick. He also refers to the Colossians as saints. That word is from the root word for holiness in Greek. It has the idea of ones who are set apart. But the main thing I want to point out about that, you know, Paul, a lot of times in his greetings, calls to the saints at such and such place, is that saint is not some special classification of believer or something that is conferred upon somebody by some church council somewhere. It is the status before God of all who have trusted Christ and are redeemed by his death on the cross. You are a saint. Now, I've hung out with some of you. You don't always act like saints. <laughs> Three fingers pointing back at me when I say that, yeah. <coughs> You're all saints. Nobody has to declare you one because Jesus already did. Because of his work and his death and resurrection. So for these saints at Colossae, Paul is going to start praying for them. His prayer starts in verse 3. I'm only going to do the first part of it. Dan Andrews next Sunday is going to do the second part of it. So that'll be fun. He really likes this book. So he's going to be really excited next week. He's wanted to talk to me about this book. We were out talking about Christmas and doing the whole thing where we split Advent again. He's like, he's like what are you going to preach next? And I'm like, I don't know. I was thinking something called, oh, I was like, you should Colossians. I was like, fine. Colossians is great. expressing what he's been praying for the people at Colossae, who he's actually never met. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and you learned it from a, the day you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You know, whenever I read one of Paul's prayers, he's got a lot of them. I'm always reminded of how far my 
arrows have to go. You would think after all these years of doing this, I would have learned more. But I still sort of fall into the same traps. You notice the first thing is he's always thankful. Even if you were to go and read 1 Corinthians, okay? I mean, if you want to think about a church that kept Paul up more nights probably than any other church, it had to be 1 Corinthians. I mean, seriously. The amount of stress. 1 Corinthians, I imagine, for Paul was like having a whole gaggle of teenage children. All just got their driver's license. <laughs> but yet, even in 1 Corinthians, where he is about to rebuke them, he still starts out with how thankful he is for them. Very thankful. He then centers his prayers first on the gospel and its outworking among them. He's thankful for their faith in Christ. Now, you notice whenever the Bible uses the word faith, it is never talking about some sort of blind leap or believing something that has no content or no evidence or no truthfulness to it. In fact, Paul here calls the gospel, he calls it what? The word of truth. Because faith is only useful if it's faith in the truth, in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith that matters is faith that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do. He's God in the flesh who came into the world and lived a sinless life and died in our place, rose from the dead to conquer death. Faith that if you have trusted him and choose to follow him, you're going to be saved from spiritual and physical death to live eternally resurrected in the life in the last days. So Romans means, right, by if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Gospel of truth, the content of which is Jesus. It's that truth that will transform lives. Because that real faith in the real Jesus changes people. It's evident when we see what Paul is next thankful for, which is their love. Now I want you to think about this. According to Jesus, according to Paul, according to John, according to Peter, and according to James, who are your major New Testament authors, the evidence of true saving faith, the evidence, not the content, the content of true saving faith is Jesus. The evidence that you have put your faith in Jesus is growing love for other people. It is not, can you recite these X number of doctrines? Those are important, but that's not what these guys say. Jesus tells us that other people are going to know we're his disciples by our love for one another. That's what Jesus says. John tells us that God is love, and therefore we have to love others. Peter says, that as we obey the truth, and the truth he's talking about is the gospel, we will have sincere brotherly love. James says that we fulfill the royal law by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Anybody see a pattern here? The evidence of saving faith is growing love. 
the truth of the gospel gives us hope. It gives us hope. Contrary to the belief of some people, hope is not wishing for something you want to happen. I, I wish I would win a $1.75 billion problem. I got a ticket, but I figured God can work on my way.
a both and, not an either or. But for most of us, it's so easy that it's an either or. We just are so, so focused on our own lives. We're not even thinking about the gospel going out to the world. But think about it. And this is no chiding any of you, because this is me too. Every other Sunday or so, we pray for one or more of our missionaries, right? How often do I remember to pray for those specific missionaries every week other than those Sundays? Not as often as I like. So my guess is our prayers could benefit from a little more eternal focus, a little more faith, and a little more hope, and a little more love for others, and a little more gospel going out throughout the world. So Paul's prayer is going to continue next week. And uh, Dr. Andrews is going to take us through verses 9 through 14, which is the rest of Paul's prayer. <clears throat> After that, then, Paul is going to expound on the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for pretty much the rest of his letter. And he's going to bring up some issues that the Colossians were dealing with as he goes along, but his answer is always going to be the same. Look at how great Jesus is. Look at how amazing Jesus is. And so we're going to get to explore some incredible truths about our Savior, uh, that are far, far more beautiful than any siren song of false teaching that the world may have for us. Things that only corrupt and destroy. But until then, may our, our lives and our prayers be marked by faith in Christ and love for all his people and a secure assurance of all that he has done for us and will do. Let's pray. Father, getting started in this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to this small church. So thankful that first, nothing is, no church is so small that it's insignificant. You had Paul write an entire letter to this little church. And nothing's more beautiful than the truth of Jesus, who is the content and center of our faith, the model for us to love others, and the first fruits of all the hope of the ages that will be fulfilled someday. So may our prayers be filled with that faith and that hope and that love, with remembering the importance of the gospel going throughout the nations. And Father, we do pray for Israel horrible situation going on there. We ask for peace. We ask for protection. We pray for hearts to change and the truth and power of the gospel. We pray for hostages to be released. We ask that you would be with those who are struggling hope of eternity.